0: a special edition of Campus Beat. I'm Dinah Jansen. In this second of two special episodes, CFRC's winter term campus news liaison, Erica Singh, caught up with student presenters at this year's Inquiry at Queen's annual undergraduate research conference an event that took place on March 9th and 10th, 2023 at Stafford Library on Queen's University campus. Celebrating its 17th year, Inquiry at Queen's was back for its first in-person event since 2020, and this year's theme was Misinformation Rogue Inquiries. In today's social media news-on-demand-driven world, misinformation is rampant. The spread of incorrect and misleading information by political and non-political players alike wreaks havoc on society's ability to make informed, critical, evidence-based decisions. Misinformation and disinformation are so prevalent that the question needs to be asked whether it is in fact now the norm, while truth and facts are the rogue actors'. In a world of ubiquitous and competing information, the ability to pose critical questions and forge a path to answer them has never been more important. This year, the theme for the conference and the overall goals of undergraduate research at Queen's collide as misinformation and disinformation pose a threat not only to the public, but also to researchers, educators and students. And while not all the research that was presented at this year's conference is directly or explicitly related to the theme of misinformation, they all demonstrate the importance of inquiry-based learning in the university undergraduate experience. The 2023 Inquiry at Queen's Conference consisted of five presentation sessions, two panel sessions, a poster session, and a keynote address delivered by Dr. Amarnath Amarasingham entitled, Dangerous Conspiracies, When Do Bad Ideas Become Violent? And coming up now in our next inquiry at Queen's Conversation, our host Erica Singh chats with Kai Sialligan, whose paper, Rethinking Tourism, Misrepresentations, Orientalism, and Colonial Nostalgia in the Contemporary Mass Tourism Industry was supported by Dr. Awit Veldemeichel of the Department of History. Over to Erica.
1: Hi, my name is Erica Singh, and what follows is a conversation I had with Kai Cialegin, who will be presenting his research on the harmful effects of tourism, which he did for the Inquiry at Queen's Undergraduate Research Conference earlier this year. All right, so Kai, can you please just introduce yourself?
2: Okay, uh, so my name is Kai Cialegin, I'm a third year Global Development and History student here at Queen's. Uh, I'm doing certificates in Law, Business, and Indigenous Languages and Cultures. Uh, And I'm here today to talk about my research that I presented at the recent Inquiry at Queen's Conference, uh, which was talking about the sort of persistence or continuity of colonial discourses and relationalities in the present-day tourism dynamic of Lake Toba, North Sumatra, Indonesia.
1: Mm -hmm. And the formal title of your presentation was Rethinking Tourism, Misrepresentations, Orientalism, and Colonial Nostalgia in the Contemporary Mass Tourism History. This is a very interesting topic. Can you please just give a brief overview of what this topic entails?
2: Uh, Yeah, so essentially what I was doing is looking at colonial histories and the way that uh, colonial sources talked about colonized groups of people um, and sort of seeing how these um, these uh, perspectives, uh, or as we would call them in the in history, uh, discourses sort of carry on through and past sort of the uh, historical period of colonialism into the present day um, and into, in particular, the way that tourism functions across the world.
1: Mm-hmm. And could you please just give some specific negative impacts that can be caused by mass tourism?
2: Yeah, so... Um, I mean, I should begin by saying that tourism is a very valuable engine of economic growth, and that's sort of how it is seen by mainstream development thinking, um, because it is, it is very um, it, it can produce very strong uh, improvements in economies, especially in the global south. So um, it has, if I remember correctly, it was 10% of the global GDP uh, was produced through tourism in 2019, so before COVID. Um, However, my my goal was sort of to problematize this understanding and sort of show that tourism wasn't a one-dimensional positive engine of growth, but also had negative impacts. So uh, one of the most prominent ones that I discuss is the way that sort of processes of othering, um, so racial othering, cultural othering, ethnic othering, um, play very heavily into tourism in places in the global south. Um, so, you know, this creation of an exotic experience for the tourist, um, in a way that you know, sort of reproduces these notions of us and them, right? So us being Western tourists and them being this, you know, exotic, this foreign, um, this, you know, savage, uh, group of people, Mm -hmm. wherever that may be.
1: Right. And how did you come across this topic?
2: Um, so the particular region that I was studying in my research, uh, was actually sort of also where I first was introduced to this topic. So, um, my family, my dad's side of the family, is from Lake Toba, Indonesia, which is the place I was studying. Um, and, you know, I've, I haven't really spent all that much time there in the broad scheme of things. Um, so, I found it interesting to sort of, especially coming to university, looking at, um, you know, academic sources and things like that online to sort of understand the history of my people better. Um, particularly because it, they aren't sort of, uh, in the in terms of uh, his, Western history, I guess the study of Western history, um, or I should say history in the West, there isn't much focus on Southeast Asia in general, and more specifically, there isn't a great deal of focus on um, North Sumatra apart from this region called Aceh. And so I was interested in sort of learning about that, but what I encountered, particularly when I was reading Online sources, sort of about the present day situation, there um, is, you know, I was le- reading through a lot of tourism advertisements, I suppose, like travel blogs, um, things like TripAdvisor, and finding that the language that was used was very uh, unsettling, I suppose. Um, it was a lot of the times there was describing these people as like exotic or savage, and um, obviously, you know, we wouldn't. We, we wouldn't want to use that language, particularly today in Canada, like we're seeing a lot of more discussions about how that language is problematic, but it was interesting to see sort of how prevalent it was in these websites, for example, right. about these people.
1: Uh-huh. And um, me, for example, I'm from South Asia, from South Asian origin, and a lot of things I notice is when portrayed in media, this there's this narrative of people from that region being like, you know, snake charmers or having that sort of like idea about them. How does this translate to media and how does like tourism contribute to the portrayal of media?
2: Yeah, so basically my argument is that um, if I were to sum it up, I suppose, in a, in a very brief manner, um, the idea is that the way that... The reason why tourism is so successful in countries in the global south, that is, former colonies, um, is because there's these perceptions in Western culture that you have the West and the rest, as uh, Stuart Hall put it. Um, and so this idea is that you, know, you have the West representing certain values and more specifically valu- sorry, values familiar to us, um, and then sort of everything else that is non-Western is sort of the opposite of that. And So as a tourist, your goal is to, you don't want to experience the mundane, right? You want to seek adventure, you want to experience new things, you want a sense of novelty and exploration. And so for that, where you're looking is places that you presume are unlike your own culture, right? Um, And so that's why you have such a significant uh, tourism industry in places like um, in countries in South Asia, Southeast Asia, Africa, um, things like that, because these tourists are looking for novelty, mm-hmm. and they presume that they're going to find that in those places because, at least in under colonialism, the way that it was constructed is that places like Indonesia, places like India, wherever it may be, um, these places were the opposite of the West. Um, and, you know, that's also where, you, where these discourses arise of things like you mentioned, the snake charmer idea, which um, is actually on the cover of Edward Said's Orientalism, which is sort of a seminal work in this Uh, in this area of research.
1: Right, so moving on to your method of research, how did he go about this task of finding information?
2: So my basic methodology is pretty simple. Um, In the article that I published, uh, from which I sort of drew the information for this presentation, um, what what I did was I essentially had three sections. The first, Mm -hmm. I was sort of constructing an image of colonial discourses surrounding the Batak of North Sumatra. Um, And so that was looking at sort of the typical sources that historians look at. So things like missionary records, things like the um, writings of historians at the time, um, things like uh, travel accounts from people visiting the region. Mm -hmm. And so sort of through these getting, uh, sort of trying to gauge how Europeans understood these people. And as a consequence, seeing um, sort of how the body of knowledge surrounding these people was constituted um, and what what particular imagery came out. And So what I found there was this sort of ossification of this image of a cannibal, or more specifically, these people being cannibalistic, mm-hmm. and also all these sort of connotations that go along with that, so them being savage, being irrational, being backwards. Um, and so that was sort of the goal of the first section. Next, I sort of take this and make a conceptual analysis. So using um, theories from from different writers in cultural studies and in other areas. So specifically, you know, talking about colonial discourses and that notion, um, talking about othering and Orientalism, as I mentioned, mm-hmm. um, and sort of trying to identify how, in theory or conceptually, um, the tourism is related to colonialism and colonial discourses. And then finally, I sort of take that conceptual framework and apply it to what we see today, as mm-hmm. well as what we um, saw in that first section. And so I look, at, um, I look at a few different sources. So on one hand, I examine some of the historiography, so other writers, um, other historians talking about topics uh, related to tourism in the area mm-hmm. um, and see what they say. And then also adding on my own personal research into primary sources. So like I said, TripAdvisor, things like Google mm-hmm. reviews, um, things like uh, travel blogs, I guess you could find online, and sort of seeing how, um, how these sources that we find in the present day present this group of people, um, and s- sort of drawing similarities between these characterizations and the ones that we see under colonialism, mm-hmm. um, sort of through that conceptual lens. And so that was the methodology, and um, I sort of concluded with, yes, there is this persistence that you see um, between colonial discourses and present-day depictions.
1: Right. Um, So I had a look through your article. That's very interesting to me, the whole topic and the way you presented it. The word um, cannibalism, which was in the headline of your article, is this something that you've come across? Because your article is very recent. um, Is this something that is being portrayed even now on travel websites?
2: Yes, yeah. Yes. So um, it's a very, like, not ubiquitously, mm-hmm. uh, but certainly in many, many um, particular sites. So one, one interesting one, and with a personal connection to me, is Huta uh, Sialegen, which is, you know, the same as my last name. Um, and it's a popular site in that region for mm-hmm. tourists to visit. Um, and part of the reason, at least I argue in my article, part of the reason it is so popular is because of this story or this narrative presented um, by the tour guides there about mm-hmm. this cannibalistic king and sort of how he, you know, tortured and executed uh, prisoners and then ate mm-hmm. them and sort of this allure of this you know danger or this savagery I suppose um, that draws tourists in and you know sort of captures their imagination, right? Mm-hmm.
1: Right, and through your research, you've mentioned that a lot of these types of stories they really um, even if it is just a story, there's a lot of emphasis placed on the global south. Even though places, say, in the Western world in Europe, do have stories like this also, why do you think there's a discourse on those stories being seen as exotic and things that are just crazy and should never happen? But in the Western world, it's like myths and stuff that never happen. It's not a part of their tourism industry.
2: Mm-hmm. Um, so I think um, this is a good question because it's something that Um, sort of seems under addressed in Mm. my article. Um, And so if I'm understanding it right, like why is tourism different in Global South versus Global Mm. North and the way that it's conducted? Right. Okay, Um, yeah, so what I would point to is a a few different things. So um, on one hand, it's the history of tourism in the two areas is very different. So for example, um, a place like Paris, a place like London, have had people going there for hundreds of years um, in large numbers, and for reasons very different to a place like Lake Toba, so um, you know f- one big thing obviously would be t- business reasons, right mm-hmm. um, They were very big commercial centers, but they were also very big cultural centers so people were coming there to contribute to culture um, and and you know other reasons sort of related to that so mm-hmm. the what I'm getting at though is the history of places in Europe, so like Paris, you know, Venice is a big one as well, Mm. um, that receive a lot of tourists. They aren't receiving tourists because they're seen as other, Mm -hmm. whereas in places like Indonesia, Lake Toba historically had virtually no outsiders coming in um, for a variety of reasons, until um, sort of the 20th century, and then you see this really large growth of the tourism industry there. And so, the reason that I would point to for this difference is that, you know, historically Lake Toba wasn't really a tourist site, whereas places like Paris and London were. And the reason for that is because the tourism industry in Indonesia developed specifically because of, um, in, in part because of a lack of industry due to colonization, which is a complicated topic. Um, but additionally, because it was so easy to sell, the culture, and sort of the people themselves to tourists, like to commodify them, I suppose. Mm-hmm. Um, and that sort of make makes a market difference between, um, at least in terms of origins and function, between tourism there and in places like Europe. Okay.
1: And going back to Lake Toba, do you have any specific examples of how mass tourism has harmed the community over there?
2: Um, yeah, so there's... There's a lot of actually there's a good deal of writing on this on different topics so some some authors talk about the ecological um impacts of growing tourism industry um and i personally that's not one of my interests of course my interest is more in the cultural impacts um as well as the economic impacts i suppose so i would i would say for my research at least the two things that i would point to would be um, one, the sort of economic, the reproduction of economic hierarchies uh, mm-hmm. between Western countries and there. And that's tying into notions of dependency as well. And secondly, um, again, like this cultural othering that we see. Okay. So um, did you want me to expand on that at all? or The
1: othering? Um, yes. Uh, of them, yeah. Yes, please. That would okay. be great.
2: Yeah, so uh, essentially... Um, The way that I problematize this continuity of colonial discourses in tourism um, is that it reproduces structures of um, and attitudes, I suppose, of othering. So, you know, if we're continuing to describe these people in a certain way, you know, cannibalistic, backwards, savage, whatever it may be, um, what that does is it, you know, recreates this... um, It recreates this relationship between the West and non-Western countries, um, in a way that, um, re- like I mean, I keep going back to the word "reproduce," but you know, reproduces uh, these notions that other countries are markedly different from the West, and sort of subtextually, in a, they're different in a negative way. So they're sort of inferior to Western culture. Mm-hmm. And then what you see is when you have, for example, diasporic peoples from those places, places like Canada, um, if the predominating discourses. Today, due to tourism or whatever it may be, surrounding you know their origin countries, if those discourses are negative, then those will negatively impact diasporic peoples living in foreign countries. So, to give mm-hmm. you an example, you know, people talk a lot about, for example, I, actually probably the best example would be um, China. Now, there's um, a lot of fear, I suppose, especially in Canada, the United States, surrounding China. Um, for a lot of reasons, and um, I've written on this as well in some of my courses. Um, but what you, what you see is this sort of increasing um, Sinophobia, I suppose. Um, and so you saw that a lot, obviously, with COVID. Um, you're seeing that a lot now with other developments going on in the region. Um, and so, as a consequence, like these discourses surrounding China as like this um, you know, authoritarian state those can have impacts on Chinese people living in Canada, for example, mm-hmm. where they face greater rates of um, violence, for example, or harassment or discrimination.
1: Right. And um, obviously governments and policymakers may play a lot of part in this. What do you, What are some things that governments can do to address the negative impacts of mass tourism and also these stereotypes?
2: Yeah, so um, I want to emphasize again that like tourism isn't... Yes. completely negative, um, uh-huh. but it's also not completely positive. And so the the typical approach in the world governments or by the World Bank, by national governments across the world, um, is this positive view of tourism as a driver of economic growth and economic development, mm-hmm. which it is. Um, and so I don't see that going away anytime soon. Mm-hmm. Um, and you know it's really debatable if it should. Um, so one thing I actually mentioned in my presentation was that um, a lot of the people actually living, in at least in Lake Toba, a lot of them living there, don't necessarily have an issue with um, with the way that they're represented in the tourism industry, and themselves reproduce these stereotypes um, simply because they recognize that you know it's a it's going to improve their economic situation, mm. um, and so that's something important to consider as well, um, especially if we want to go about like a more democratic approach to development. Um, But at the same time, you know, it's very difficult because I don't think, I don't know if it is possible, honestly, to um, extract, I suppose, the economic benefit from these sort of processes of othering. Mm -hmm. Um, And uh, realistically, I mean, there are alternative options. You know, one thing people talk about is, as opposed to what's called ethnic tourism or cultural tourism, more focusing on ecotourism, so people visiting for the natural scenery. Um, and as a consequence to that, you know you might also see improvements um, in uh, ecological preservation in those areas as well. Or on the other hand, you might see a you know a decline in sort of the conditions there. So it's a little it's it's a very complicated topic, and um, I could not give a particular answer, mm-hmm. honestly. Um, but I think it's uh, my goal with the research wasn't necessarily to solve this issue yes. But at, uh, at least to sort of um, problematize it in a way that we're more conscious about these issues when we're approaching a topic like tourism development.
0: Mm-hmm.
1: So now I just want to talk to you a bit about your experience with the conference. Um, how was the whole process of presenting and going through that?
2: Well, I had a lot of fun actually. Mm-hmm. Um, I was looking into research conferences as early as uh, August, I think. Mm-hmm. And um, yeah, so I you know I was kind of thinking about maybe I'll do it, maybe I won't. Mm -hmm. Um, Anyway, so you know March or February, whenever it was, came around, and I was like, yeah, whatever, I'll apply. Uh, And you know I got to do my presentation. Um, I had a lot of fun with it. I got to see two other, actually three other presentations, including the keynote. Mm -hmm. Uh, Very interesting, and it was interesting to see sort of this diversity of uh, perspectives and different you know in different ways that they related to. The uh, you know the topic of misinformation, right? Um, no, but I um, I had a lot of fun with it. Mm-hmm. I thought it was great. Um, I had a lot of good feedback as well. Um, I know a lot of people they hadn't they they told me they hadn't really heard about these topics or even considered tourism in this way. <laughs> so m- the ability to sort of uh, you know I suppose like provide this uh, perspective that mm-hmm. I think is important on this topic um, and sort of maybe expand people's critical awareness of these issues. Um, I'm grateful to have had that
0: opportunity.
1: Yep, sounds great. All right, well, thank you so much for joining me here today. I had a great time talking to you.
0: And coming up next is the last of our five inquiry at Queen's Conversations, where host Erica Singh sat down with Melody Garris, whose paper, No Nut November, Needed or Just Nuts, addressed misinformation about the safe and healthy practice of masturbation, a project supervised by Dr. Carolyn Pakal of the Department of Psychology.
1: Hello and welcome to CFRC. My name is Erica Singh and today I'm joined in studio by Melody Garris. Hi, Melody. How's it going today? I'm so good. How are you, Erica? I'm great. Thank you. So do you mind just telling us a bit about yourself and about your research as well?
3: Yeah. So um, my name is Melody and I'm a third year psychology major. Um, and so this year I've done a lot of research in the Sexual Health Research Lab, um, which is directed by Dr. Caroline Pucall. And so that's where I kind of did the research and got really interested in this kind of project, which I presented at the inquiry at Queen's Conference a few weeks ago.
1: Right. And
3: you researched this project for your class, Psych 333? Yes, I did. So we had to write a blog style paper. Mm -hmm. And so this whole project kind of originated from this paper that I wrote.
1: Do you mind just giving us a brief introduction of your research?
3: Yeah. So um, generally, the research focuses on masturbation and anti-masturbation practices um, with a specific focus on semen retention and narratives around that. Um, But for the specific project, I kind of focused on the broader um, narratives and feelings towards masturbation and anti-masturbation.
1: And what inspired you to um, write your paper on this topic?
3: Well, when I was writing this paper, it was the month of November, and so obviously you hear the jokes and you see the memes and tweets online about No Nut November, and so studying sexual health, you kind of know that those things aren't really true and that they're based in things that might not be the healthiest. And so I kind of was just inspired by hearing my peers make things uh, or make jokes about things that I knew were kind of more serious and had more serious narratives underlying them. So I, I just kind of wanted to write a paper to, to highlight why this joke might not be as funny as people think it is.
1: Mm. And could you highlight just some of the specific examples that you went over in your paper?
3: Yeah, so um, some examples of the harm that the jokes cause are kind of like shame towards masturbation in general. It just like perpetuates a narrative that, you know, men who masturbate or people with penises who masturbate are inferior um, or won't be able to sleep with a woman, which again perpetuates misogyny and treating women as a means to an end. Um, It also just perpetuates false narratives about how masturbation is healthy or unhealthy or that going without masturbating for a long time um, is healthy and you'll see all of these clinical benefits, which as I go over in my presentation has not been proven true. Um, So those are just kind of some of the baseline examples of the harmful misinformation from that.
1: Right. And so you mentioned the benefits of masturbation. Um, What do you think are the most significant
3: ones and how do you draw upon through your research? Yeah, so I think the most significant benefits of masturbation are the ones that Are kind of just like everyday significance um so primarily you get a lot of endorphins from masturbating um you get higher self-esteem as a function of kind of being more comfortable with your own body and then you know having a higher self-esteem that in turn kind of helps boost um like partner and like relationship quality um so there's just like a lot of really good feel-good benefits you get from masturbating, and I would say those are pretty significant.
1: Mm-hmm. And a big aspect of the narrative surrounding this is the shaming of individuals who engage in masturbation. Um, how does this affect the shaming, their mental and physical well-being?
3: Yeah, so um, one thing I focus on in my research is specifically how young people are um hearing these trends and participating in these trends. And so it's been clinically proven that shaming really young people for masturbation has the potential to really negatively harm their sexual adjustment. Um, so like if you're instilling guilt and shame into people for something that is healthy at such a young age, um, they're definitely going to have to work with this and sit with this for a long time growing up. Um, and so again, this definitely has the potential to lead to being not fully sexually adjusted or having difficulty with your own sexuality and with other sexuality. So it's, it's really a problem that kind of starts young, but definitely can affect anyone at any age. Um, yeah, Dealing with guilt surrounding sexuality in a culture that already shames us for so much surrounding our sexuality is really a kind of insidious issue that I wanted to get at.
1: Um, what advice would you offer to individuals who feel shame or guilt surrounding their masturbation
3: habits? I think the advice I would offer these individuals is probably to... Um, do research seek out facts and be educated don't listen to peers or myths or things that you might hear on the internet Um, I would encourage them to seek out real answers and then they can make their decision based on that Um, a large part of this project was me wanting to show the facts so that people can make educated decisions for themselves you know um Like if you have the facts and then you want to decide that masturbating is not for you, that's totally cool. But it should be based on real things and not shame or fake, fake facts or narratives. Um, So I think that's primarily what I would say is seek out facts, um, seek out answers from people who have your best interests at heart.
1: Mm hmm. Right. So now I want to pivot to some of your research, Mm -hmm. how you went about researching this. So the Psych 333 class, did it take place this semester or last semester? Yeah. So this was a fall semester course. Uh Uh-huh. And your paper, was it, uh, did it take you the entire
3: semester to do? Um, So I had started kind of just jotting down ideas about this Mm -hmm. in early November. I think this paper was due more towards the end of November. So, kind of over just the course of that month, I, I like worked with this idea, and I did some research. this This whole paper mm-hmm. was secondary research. Mm-hmm. So it was a lot of me in my personal time doing some deep dives mm-hmm. and um, looking at research that had been done about this or research that was more broad about masturbation.
1: Uh-huh. And what resources did you use to go about researching your topic?
3: So mostly, I used a lot of like databases to search for clinical papers. I tried to focus. Um, my search in journals, so like journals of sexuality, um, journals of um, urology and things like that, um, where I just wanted to get really empirically proven and fact-driven information. So I tried to stick to that kind of research. Right.
1: And for someone who wants to go on their own journey about finding out more information about this, is there any source that you would recommend?
3: Yeah, Definitely. Um, first of all, we have our very own Psych 333 class at Queen's, which is open to everybody, and that was a really, really great class. You learn a lot of research-proven things about masturbation and a lot of other things. Um, other than taking the class, I would say you have the internet, which is a great resource um, if you know how to steer clear of the prominent misinformation that you might find. I would say Google Scholar is a great source. You could go on Google Scholar and pop in a quick search about masturbation or the benefits of masturbation um, or the benefits of abstinence, whatever it is that you're curious about, and looking again at these like research papers that have been properly researched and aren't just people sprouting their opinions on the internet.
1: Right. And talking about research, what are some gaps in research on the topic of masturbation and sexual health? Do you think need to be
3: addressed in future studies? Definitely. So there's always gaps um, with research because sexuality is so understudied in general. So we definitely have gaps, um, I would say, with different populations of people, different groups. um, We haven't looked specifically at a lot of different areas of masturbation, so there's things like mutual masturbation, which occur with partners, um, and I haven't seen too much research done about that. Um, Also, again, in different groups of people, so masturbation in older folks, masturbation, um, yeah, in people who are in older adulthood, again, hasn't been studied as much as it has when it comes to younger folks, Um, and again... Uh, different groups of people. So masturbation in intersex folks or people who don't identify with any kind of gender. Um, There's definitely differences. Uh, It's really not not proper to assume that gender diverse people are a monolith. And so I think definitely research has to be done kind of identifying um, the differences so that we can, you know, understand everybody equally and better.
1: Mm-hmm. And what do you think that educators and healthcare workers can do to bridge these gaps a bit?
3: So definitely, I think when it comes to educators, um, I think sex education should start with a sex positive approach. Uh, I think that it might be really harmful to go in with an abstinence focused approach, as we know so many so many different. Uh, schools and educators kind of go. So I think that um, a sex positive approach when teaching, especially teaching younger people, is definitely a good way to go and saying that masturbation is safe and healthy and okay and that there are benefits you can get from it, not just what is masturbation and this is something that people do because then you kind of leave it up to the interpretation of them to decide if, okay, this is a thing, but is it safe to do? Is it healthy to do? So I think it's really important um, that educators kind of move beyond just what is masturbation and go into the benefits and how it's safe and normal and healthy Um, And same with healthcare. I think that, again, a really sex positive approach is something that is needed to be able to um, reassure people. Sometimes people just want that reassurance that something is okay, Um, whether that be people in school or people going into the healthcare system. I think that a lot of the time people just want to be told that what they're doing is okay and be validated. So I think that that's really important for healthcare workers and educators to do is to to validate people who are doing things that are safe and healthy and reassure them.
1: Right. In my personal experience I went from a public school to a Catholic school and the difference in sex education was very
3: like concrete and astounding. Mm Have you covered religious guilt or anything in your paper at all? Mm-hmm. So this is a topic that I'm definitely interested in. Um however, it didn't come up in this specific mm-hmm. paper or in my conference um, presentation. But definitely this is a really prominent source of kind of um, shame and stigma surrounding masturbation. We know that people with different um, religious beliefs have different opinions about this. And so definitely it is an issue uh, with different kind of school boards covering different areas of sexual education kind of in a lens that fits what they want to to share best and again might not really be in the best interest of the students they're teaching but yeah it's definitely a prominent problem and so again I think that educators should have their students best interests at heart and kind of again share the facts about it and that it's normal and not think that um hiding it or not going over it is gonna gonna do anything. Um, but yeah, it's definitely an issue to be researched in mm-hmm. the future.
1: Going into your experience with the conference, um, tell me about the process, How did you apply for the conference? How's your experience participating? So yeah,
3: for sure. Um, so I had written this paper in November and then I heard about the conference um, and the theme of this year was misinformation. And so I thought that was kind of a perfect theme for this paper I had just written, which was about the prominent misinformation about masturbation, specifically about No Nut November. So I talked with my faculty supervisor, um, who is Dr. Caroline Pucall, who was the instructor for the class I wrote this paper for and she encouraged me to submit an abstract and so I did. I just quickly wrote up an abstract kind of about what I wanted to talk about at this conference and why I thought it was important Um, and so I did. I submitted that abstract and luckily I got selected to speak at the conference and so from there it was kind of just turning everything I had written into this paper into a presentation that was kind of um, meant for like a general audience. Kind of I had to take all of this like scientific information that I had written and move it into a format that I knew could be understood by people who might not be familiar with sex research or with this kind of material or subjects. So that was a little bit challenging for me, but I did Mm -hmm. have a really good time kind of going over the research and putting it into this like fun format where I got to share it with so many more people and kind of extend the reach beyond what I ever thought this Mm -hmm. paper would go you know writing this paper I thought it would just be seen by one or two TAs and then getting the chance to turn it into something that so many people would see and hopefully benefit from was really exciting for me to do um but yeah and then submit the presentation I practiced for weeks um, presenting just so that I would be ready and then the conference happened and I thought it went great
1: That's lovely. So going in the future, you still have a year left at university. Is this topic something you would like to explore more or is there something new that you'd like to explore?
3: Yeah, absolutely. So this is definitely something that I'm looking into studying more. And yeah, so I'll be working in the sexual health research lab over the summer, um, hopefully on this as well. But there are other projects I'm going to be working on. So sex research is so broad and there's so many different topics in it. And I think I'm interested in so many things within it that, um, yeah, I'm definitely going to keep looking into kind of anti-masturbation practices because I'm still really passionate about it. But I think that um, I definitely will kind of open my horizons and look into like other aspects of it as well but yeah i don't think this is going to be the last you guys hear from me about no not november mm-hmm. and we'll love to have you back
1: um uh just before we end over here i just want to talk a bit more about the title of no not november mm-hmm. one thing that really sticks out to me about the um conversation about no not november is that it takes away from. Act- the actual thing called Movember, which Mm -hmm. is for men's mental health. And uh, can you just talk about that a bit, about the problematic aspect of naming of that
3: joke? Yeah, for sure. So, um, yeah, we're aware that No Nut November kind of overshadows what was supposed to be a month about um, men's mental health. And, you know, that's a great initiative. And to kind of have it be overshadowed by this Internet joke that, effectively kind of has the potential to harm um, the mental health of men or anyone participating in the trend, uh, it's it's really harmful. And so again, that's kind of what I want to do with educating people about the kind of Um, notorious underlying narratives of No Nut November um, kind of brings people's attention that this might not be the best challenge to be participating in and shift their attention to other things that might be worth their attention such as again um, Movember which focuses a lot on like men's mental health again which kind of breaks the stigma that goes into No Nut November Um, these like ideas of what masculinity is and what a real man is and all of these, like, harmful narratives that are rooted in, like, transphobia and misogyny. Um, so I think it's really beneficial to kind of shift people's attention to an initiative that talks about mental health of men and how you don't have to uphold these standards and um, be this masculine image to be considered a real man. Um, so, yeah, that's just another aspect of what makes uh, the whole internet ch- trend really harmful. Mm-hmm. Right.
1: Well, before we say goodbye over here, do you have anything else to add, something we didn't get to today?
3: Um, yeah, so I would just say again to uh, anyone listening who has like questions about this to really get educated. Um, I think that doing research is so important and can be so fun and so beneficial. So I would say look into these things for yourself and make a decision that is best for you. Um, again, there's no one answer for everyone. Um, So whether you choose to masturbate or not or engage in other practices or not, um, you should look into the facts for yourself and make your own decisions. Um, You have your own best interests at heart at the end of the day. And so that's what's most important. Um, But yeah, thank you so much for having me today. Of course, I love talking to you today.
1: Um, Thank you so much.
0: Thank you for tuning into Inquiry at Queen's Conversations right here on Campus Beat on CFRC 101.9 FM with our host Erica Singh. I'm Dinah Jansen. You can learn more about other presentations made at the March 2023 Inquiry at Queen's Annual Undergraduate Research Conference by visiting the IAQ page on Queen's University's website. Thanks to all the presenters who joined us to share enlightening information in the context of this year's conference theme, Misinformation Rogue Inquiries. Stay tuned for more great programming coming up on CFRC and visit our website to learn more about how you can start your own show or podcast with us. Have a great day.